How do we amp up our military and win the war on terror? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Moreno, the David and Lynn Silfen University Professor and Professor of Medical Ethics and of History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Moreno holds a joint appointment in the School of Arts and Sciences and in Medical Ethics in the School of Medicine. He's also the author of the book... Mind Wars, Brains, Research, and National Defense, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Dr. Moreno, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, my first question is, how did you even come up with the topic for the book? What was your inspiration? Well, about 1994, I was asked to serve on a presidential advisory committee staff on human radiation experiments. These were long rumored experiments, rumored since the late 1940s involving ionizing radiation with unwitting human subjects and done under the auspices of or even paid for by the federal government. So for about a year and a half, I worked in this advisory committee, and I learned that although I had been a student of medical ethics by then for 20-plus years, I knew almost nothing about the role of medical ethics and the policy for doing human experiments in the military. So I wrote a book in 2000, published a book called Undue Risk, about the history and ethics of human experiments for national security purposes. And then around 2000, 2001, there was a a rush of interest in the ethics of neuroscience. The neurosciences are growing at at a rate similar to the growth of genetics in the late 20th century, the neurosciences. When there's a new society for neuroscience meeting, there are 40,000 people there. It's one of the largest medical meetings in the world now. But when I went to these meetings on sort of, well, what are we doing to the brain and how are we learning about it and, and what does that mean for society, what does it mean for law and ethics and so forth, I noticed that nobody was talking about the national security and national intelligence uses of neuroscience. So I found that fascinating. And then I was asked to write a, an article for a magazine put out by the Dana Foundation. The Dana Foundation, as you probably know, sponsored a lot of neuroscience research, and they put out a magazine called Cerebrum. And, you know, I said, you know, I'd like to write something, but I really want to write something that I've been mulling over for the last couple of years, and it is the question, what is the role of the neurosciences in national security? And they said, well, that's something we haven't thought about. Why don't you write it? So this is a paper that I wrote in probably in eight hours. I just came right out of my head because I've been thinking about it. It was called DARPA on Your Mind. It's the most downloaded paper I think I've ever written. And when they read the paper, and it happens that William Sapphire, the New York Times columnist, is the president of the foundation. When they read the paper, they said, well, this is really interesting. Why don't you write a book? So that was the easiest contract I ever got (laughs) to write a book. But before I agreed, I had to reassure myself that this is a book that could actually be written because, you know, in the face of it, what can we know? What is public? about brain research and national defense. I undertook a very sophisticated research method. I googled the words DARPA, which stands for, as you know, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the Blue Sky Science Agency of the Defense Department. They're the people who invented the Internet. I googled DARPA and neuroscience, and I came up with thousands and thousands of hits. I realized that there was enough public information about what at least this particular science agency in the Defense Department was interested in the brain so that I could put a story together. So that's really how it happened. And I was struck, and I write about this early in the book, that although I hang around with a lot of neuroscientists as an ethicist going to medicine meetings and science meetings, 
they were very reluctant to talk to me for the record if they were themselves doing work on a CIA contract or a DOD contract. In a way, I understand that because no working scientist wants to offend their funding source. They were worried that they might say something that was classified that they shouldn't say. But I wasn't out to offend or embarrass anybody. I was just out as a scholar to get the neuroscientists I knew to think about what their role was and what the implications of their work could be. Well, what were you able to unearth in terms of what was being done, let's say, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? You know, in a way, there are two really fun aspects to this project. One is uh, sort of what you're alluding to, which is the history of national security interest in the brain and behavior. And the second is, what are the experiments that are being done now that they're interested in? So, to your question, this happens to be that you and I are talking on the day that I've just read the obituary of Albert Hoffman. Right, he died, he invented LSD. Uh, yes, stumbled on it, and then stumbled home, according right, to the story. Right, I think he got it on his hands and he rode his bike home. Exactly. Uh, and, he had a great, and he had a great ride home. He had a great ride, and he, that was the first trip. Uh, <laughs> he lived to 102, and he had many grandchildren, which, you know, as you may remember, you may even not as old as I am, but in the 60s there was a theory that LSD did bad things to your chromosomes. I think that has been disproven, at least right. uh, in the case of Dr. Hoffman's productivity. So there was, in fact, and this is you know, well documented now, it was documented in the 70s, there's a lot of interest in the defense establishment, including national security and national intelligence establishments, in the 50s and 60s in LSD and other hallucinogens. What killed that? Was it the Nixon administration? Well, you know, what killed it was by 1964, the FDA was realizing that there was a little too much enthusiasm for this stuff in certain quarters that they didn't trust, and that included Timothy Leary. Mm -hmm. So it was really not, it was not Nixon, it was really under the Johnson administration that public health officials got nervous. And uh, as you may remember, in the early 60s, we had been through the thalidomide tragedy. And after thalidomide, uh, FDA officials were very nervous about another drug, God knows what it could do, and the LSD had really weird social implications. So they decided to reclassify it in 1965, and even research psychiatrists could not get hold of it. As a matter of fact, my father was a psychiatrist. Growing up, he had a tax stamp in his office that said LSD, cocaine, and marijuana. So he could get it for research, but not after 65. So what killed it was the general nervousness about what it could do if it was in civilian hands. So that cut off uh, one area of research, and I don't think that the defense establishment was particularly interested in hallucinogens after that. But Hopefully someone still carried on the research. Well, you know, they didn't. In fact, I will tell you that, um, although I'm at Penn now, I was for a number of years at the University of Virginia, and there was a senior British-born physician at UVA who got here in 1964, had been doing work for years on LSD as part of psychotherapy, he thought it could be very useful in psychotherapy. He couldn't do his research anymore. His research career ended when he got here, and within a year, it had been reclassified, rescheduled. So actually, that work is only now getting started again. There are people in Switzerland, for example, who are interested in looking at hallucinogens and psychotherapy for people who are depressed, for people who have a terminal diagnosis, perhaps as an analgesic. There was a famous uh, anesthesiologist in Boston named Henry Beecher, a Harvard Mass General who used LSD as a control in his analgesia experiments, and he was also a CIA consultant. So what I'm saying is there's long-standing interest in a lot of things in the Cold War having to do with the brain and behavior 
and LSD is just a nice example of that. But the current interest is measurable in a number of different ways. And I said, it turned out I didn't really need to go into anything classified or try to get people to talk about secret stuff. First of all, I didn't want to get thrown in jail, and I didn't want them to. Because there really is a lot of stuff that is public, and most of DARPA's work is public. Let's get back to the book. What have you learned that will help our soldiers, our military, be ready for anything? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. So something that has concerned war planners ever since there were large numbers of extensive infantry tours is sleep deprivation. Many accidents are caused in the civilian world and the military world for lack of sleep. You know, I think it'll be very interesting to try to figure out, for example, the guys who are in Iraq right now, you know, how many people died on both sides because of sleep deprivation. Are they using go pills? Do they still call them go pills? Well, go pills, amphetamines, speed, yes, but there's something new on the horizon. You've probably heard of modafinil. Provigil. Provigil, right. right. I, right. I, I want to say I have no stock in the company. Oh, that's fine. But I'm very intellectually interested in, in Provigil, and I'm personally interested. I've used it occasionally. There was just a study in Nature a few weeks ago. They asked all their readers to tell them if they uh, used, and 20% of those who responded said they used Adderall or Provigil or Beta Blocker for mm-hmm. non-medical purposes at some point. So there's a lot of people in science who are using Provigil right. to get their papers done, to readjust when they get to, you know, uh, to get to Beijing for their conference. So Provigil in the morning and an Ambien at night. Yes, or with my colleague Anjan Chatterjee at Penn, a neurologist, says my prescription for my patients who are traveling across time zones is Ambien when you get on the plane, Provigil when you get off the plane. Right. So there's no doubt that the Air Force is using Provigil as a complementary treatment to keep people focused and alert and awake, particularly when they're in potentially target-rich environments for long periods of time up in the sky. Is there a drug out there that makes a soldier a better killer? Well, there's been a lot of interest in that. So far, what we already know from interpersonal studies from the World War II in Korea is probably more effective than anything we can give people as a drug. For example, you may recall it from the history books that after the Second World War, it was discovered that relatively few men actually fired their weapons in combat. So the war planners realized that they needed to put a relatively passive soldier next to a relatively aggressive soldier in a firing line, and that would take care of that problem. So those interpersonal influences are probably more effective than any medication, any drug we could give. And, of course, the problem is that we don't know these neural networks well enough to know how to turn them off. <laughs> so you, know, you make somebody more aggressive, you give them some, some crack, and they're pretty indiscriminate in their aggression. Right. So that doesn't work so well. What about spraying something like Soma in the air in a hostile environment? The generic problem with any kind of aerosol is that the light tends to kill it, sunlight, and it evaporates very quickly. It's not you know, manageable. This is an old problem dating back to mustard gas in World War I. There is some interest in fentanyl or carfentanyl, uh, cognitives and other opioids, if they could be aerosolized, but that would probably only work in a confined space. If you remember the Moscow theater tragedy in 2002, mm-hmm. when the Chechen terrorists took over during a musical theater performance with 700 people in the building, the Russian army pumped carfentanyl, apparently it was carfentanyl, into the air conditioning system. And indeed, they put everybody to sleep, but they did not tell the emergency medical teams outside what they had used, and before they could give them the antidote, somewhere between 130 and 150 people died. For our returning soldiers that are coming back from their current tours that have PTSD, is there something out there that's been shown in research to be helpful, but that our country, for whatever reason, is so prudish to offer these guys? 
there is a small signal from some studies that suggest that beta blockers may be useful in the treatment of PTSD. Now, Bob Pittman at Harvard, I was on a panel with him a couple of years ago at NIH, he doesn't think it's likely to be very useful, but he thinks that something may come along. And the interesting question then is, what if you could give this to somebody before they went into combat? You could prevent them from consolidating emotions of guilt and shame with their long-term memory. You might be able to create a soldier who's coming home, doesn't have PTSD, but also doesn't feel guilt. And there's an interesting ethical question there about whether that's a trade-off as a society we could accept. Could we accept a set of guilt-free soldiers? Well, Dr. Jonathan Moreno, thank you so much for talking to me well, thank today. you. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, please visit our website, ReachMD.com. And if you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD. You can listen to all day long on your computer at home or at work. And thank you for listening.